This is the Criterion Cast, episode 185. We're talking about Andre Tarkovsky's Stalker tonight. This is Trevor Barrett, and I'm here tonight with Scott Nye. Scott, how are you doing? Uh, fantastic. Feeling very introspective. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to journey inside the soul tonight, I hope. <laughs> Without some of the, the maybe uh, bad consequences. I'm looking forward to talking tonight about Stalker with you. Um, let's see. We're recording this on the evening of July 20th, 2017. The Barnes & Noble sale is in full swing. It's always kind of a fun time of year. Have you have you uh, participated at all? Are you planning on doing it this year, Scott? Uh, I think I have exhausted the extent of my participation, which was uh, leaping on a... Uh, discount code the very first night of the sale that they hadn't yet deactivated. Oh, yes. Um, so I was able to pick up uh, the second volume of the World Cinema Project and the Marseille Trilogy. And what else did I get? Made in USA. Uh, Rumblefish. That was the other one. Yeah. So a good haul. Cool. Very cool. Yeah, I, I, I finally went over there today and picked up some. Some of those old ones that I've always thought, well, I'll get that next sale. The ones that are around always. I finally got... Um, Amarcord, for example, on Blu-ray. Oh, Had nice. Yeah, that's DVD for years. Forever. Yeah, just one of those that you know you'll always pick up, so why not pick it up next time and pick up this new new treat? But anyway, listeners, uh, we are here tonight, as I said, to talk about Andrei Tarkovsky's Stalker. For me, uh, just to, to get things kind of going in that direction, um, Andrei Tarkovsky is one of my favorite directors. Scott, you and I have talked about Bergman quite a bit, and he's, you know, I've said he's my favorite. I think you've said he's your favorite director, and I think he still is, but I'd put Tarkovsky up there pretty close by him as far as my own personal views are. I, I love his work uh, since the first time I saw Solaris back, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. And after that, I tried to find everything that I could, and the Criterion has made that pretty easy with the quite a bit of his work out and then you have to go other places for some of the rest of it that aren't maybe quite as stellar in their offerings and that's how stalker was available the first time i saw it was through a kino dvd that i thought looked terrible but we're blessed with a beautiful new blu-ray in fact it just came out this week so this is going to be a fresh episode scott but i'm kind of curious what your own you know view i i don't think i've ever talked to tarkovsky with you so i don't know if you admire him or if you think he's pretentious slow does not your cup of tea or if he's if he's up there too with Bergman. So what what's your history with Tarkovsky in general? Uh, he is not up there with Bergman for me, but that is more a testament to Bergman than it is uh, any kind of slander on Tarkovsky. <laughs> um, I, I've had kind of an up-down relationship with him, though. I first saw, and actually the only time I've seen Solaris, I'm interested to return to it. I saw it during kind of a summer binge of space movies where something you know people go up in space and something goes wrong there's a lot of them so i was watching you know like all the alien <laughs> movies i was watching uh what uh armageddon i was watching uh i can't remember some, some other kind of very very heavy genre movies and then in the middle of which was uh solaris um which is a very kind of heady and <laughs> thoughtful and slow moving exercise that i you know, I expected something like that, but I hadn't quite expected that specifically. So I, I got to see it again sometime for sure. Um, but ever oh, yeah, since yeah. then, I've pretty much, I think I've liked everything. Well, I'm not big on nostalgia, um, his movie from the early 80s. But everything else I've managed to catch, and I think this is key, I've managed to catch them in theaters. Um, a lucky part of living in L.A. is occasionally they'll show Tarkovsky movies. Um, and I think that's made a real difference with how I approach and appreciate kind of his pace where you don't have any option of distraction. You know, you're just there focused on the movie and 
the enveloping experience of the image and sound is just so powerful that you really you really get what he's going for and you know if people can get that at home more power to them i uh it apparently just took me a while to get to that space myself um whereas now when i watch stalker at home over the last week i was really completely enveloped by it actually more so than i was in the theater which i'm sure we'll get to more specifically but stalker was the uh, last film i had to see in uh, my tarkovsky experience i've now seen everything he's done uh, it was one I really held out on because I'd heard such wonderful things about it and wanted to see kind of a pristine presentation. Like you said, the, the Kino DVD did not have the best marks and kind of seeing screen caps and stuff, I was like, well, you know, eventually this movie will be shown in a theater or it will come to Blu-ray or some combination of the two, which we have this year with the new DCP that Janice kind of toured earlier this year and which I saw in May and then with this new Blu-ray that's now out and really, really looks astounding. Yeah, I agree. I'm with you on nostalgia. That's the one of yeah. his. In fact, Matt Gasteyer just watched it, I think, this past week and posted that he really enjoyed it. And I had to tell him, you know, I, I need to get back to it because it's the one film of his that I just it couldn't connect to. I love some of the images. I love some of what's going on in there, but it just doesn't quite uh, propel me forward. It doesn't quite connect with me in the same way that something like Stalker does. And I'll, I'll admit right here, I don't really know all that Stalker is about. So so it's not it's not a necessary ingredient for me to enjoy a Tarkovsky movie is to to understand it, but for whatever reason nostalgia just didn't connect with me, but I'm going to I'm going to retry it again sometime. Yeah, I just remember sitting in the theater and I don't remember much about the movie at this point, but I remember it gets that part where the guy's just walking back and forth in an empty pool and <laughs> Something, you know, there wasn't anything <laughs> Which I like, liked. <laughs> okay, fair enough. There wasn't, to me, there wasn't anything like especially compelling about that aesthetically. And I didn't really know what larger thing it was propelling forward. And I was just, I didn't really know what we were doing here. It was, it was, I remember that pretty well because it was one moment where I thought, okay, I don't get it, but something, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. I'll, I want to watch this with some attention, I guess, but... <laughs> Anyway, yeah, well, I'm glad we've... So we're both Tarkovsky com uh, complete. That's kind of a nice thing on these uh, to be able to come and talk to... Uh, not that I think we need that either. I've talked um, ignorantly about plenty of people. <laughs> but I always enjoy the conversation. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to this tonight. Um, maybe just to introduce Stalker in particular, just to give listeners a heads up, we will talk briefly at the beginning about our general thoughts on the film. But then this is a kind of film that I think really you need to talk, be, be free to talk about everything that happens in it. So we're not going to be sensitive to spoilers once the first part is over with. So if you haven't seen Stalker, be forewarned. At the same time, it's probably kind of a difficult film to spoil other than you won't be surprised by what happens, you know? I mean, th there's so much going on that maybe it's not always about the events so much as this the, the, the way that it puts you in its atmosphere and... and and what you think about in those moments, but but just be forewarned that we'll be we'll be talking about everything up until the last shot, um, and and we can we'll, we'll feel free to talk about it at any moment. But to begin with, here's how Criterion has um, has uh, blurbed uh, Stalker on the back of their disc. It says. Andrei Tarkovsky's final Soviet feature is a metaphysical journey through an enigmatic post-apocalyptic landscape and a rarefied cinematic experience like no other. A hired guide, the stalker, leads a writer and a professor into the heart of the zone, the restricted site of a long-ago disaster where the three men eventually zero in on the room, a place rumored to fulfill one's most deeply held desires. 
Adapting a science fiction novel by Arkady and Boris Strugatsky, Tarkovsky created an immersive world with a wealth of material detail and a sense of organic atmosphere, a religious allegory, a reflection of contemporaneous political anxieties, a meditation on film itself. Talker envelops the reader by opening up a multitude of possible meanings. So, Scott, give me your general thoughts on Stalker. I'm curious about getting into those possible meanings, but um, because you said nostalgia was one that you didn't particularly enjoy, I'm assuming Stalker is one you do like. Uh, Yes, I think especially more so on the second viewing when I kind of got where the story was heading and where kind of... I guess more of the the general arc of the film. I don't know. But for the most part in Tarkovsky, what I like is the not understanding and the kind of rush of imagery and sounds and the sort of, I don't know, there's an edgy quality of the performances um, where people seem to constantly either be like pushing for something or afraid of something. And even if, you know, I don't personally understand narratively what is go- they're going for and where the emotional urgency is coming from, there's, there's an edge there that's very compelling, which kind of leads me onward. Um, and while I think that's definitely present in Stalker, I think, I don't know, there was something that was commuting at somewhat of a distance the first time around. Um, but watching it again, I was really enveloped by it. And what I really thought about was how Tarkovsky keeps the film moving along, even though, I mean, there's no doubt about it, it is a slow film. But in comparison to films of today, which could be described as part of kind of a slow cinema movement, there's a lot of movement in this film. You know, there, almost every frame, there's actors walking, there's things, there's like leaves blowing in the wind, there's uh, water rushing by, you know, there's, or the camera's moving even. Uh, there's constantly kind of something urging the movie forward uh, in a way that I, I don't think necessarily all, you know, three hour, very slow moving movies attempt to do, you know you really get the sense of a filmmaker guiding us along. Um, so as mysterious and as uh, weird as his films can get, I think that's a very key element in terms of just making them uh, somewhat watchable. Um, but the, the rest of my uh, general feelings about this, I'll have to reserve for a more spoilery discussion. So you should give <laughs> yours first. Okay. Yeah. No, Stalker's always been one that I've enjoyed, but I'm with you. The first time I watched it, like many good movies... Uh, you know, not not being able to wrap my mind around it at the end made me feel a little bit disappointed. And I guess particularly because I had no idea what I had just watched. Not, not even close. I mean, I thought that I had some idea and then, you know, it all kind of dissipates and dissipated for me. But it certainly was a film that continued to haunt me and continued to watch it over the years. And, you know, I, I felt like I had a, a decent not grasp on all of that it's going that is going on, but at least a decent grasp that I just really enjoyed this movie and um, really liked where it put me and really enjoyed what I was thinking about. And I re- I do remember when Jeff Dyer's book about um, Stalker came out, going and picking it up the day it came out. I was excited to read it, and you know by that time was a pretty big fan. And it's just one of those movies that no matter how much I've read about it the mystery doesn't go away that just keeps opening itself up. And so I've been very, very happy with it. And the other, the other night when I first got uh, my copy, I, um, I came into, into my office and sat down to watch it for, you know, maybe five, 10 minutes. I just wanted to, to see how beautiful it looked. My wife was waiting for me. I told her I'd only be a few minutes and 
you know, an hour later when I finally get through part one, I think, oh, I, I probably ought to turn this off tonight. I, I had other things I was supposed to do and my wife's waiting for me. Um, but it just, it, it does, it pulls you in, even in the slow moments. He's just got this way of making you wonder, why is he continuing with this shot? What's going on here? And, I, I, you know, it's deliberate. He knows what he's doing. There's a quote um, from him where he says, you know, when you, ex- and this isn't a direct quote, but something like this, when you extend um, a regular shot a little bit long, people get bored. But if you extend it even longer than that, well, then people get interested. It becomes interesting. And when you extend it even longer than that, well, then you're giving something a lot of really detailed, fascinating, um, in-depth attention. And that's kind of how I feel about this film. He spends a lot of time just moving the camera very slowly around rooms, over people looking at the scenery that they themselves are looking at, which kind of forces me all the time to wonder, what are they thinking? Why are they here? Um, You know, it's nice to see a film that doesn't just hit the moments that are dramatic, but lets you watch some of the journey, even the moments when the characters are just sitting on a train or a little trolley thing, engine, um, riding along a train track, and they're just, you're just watching them, and that's it. And not everyone could do this, but I, I do feel that uh, Tarkovsky puts me in such a state of mind that I'm invested at that point enough to just sit there and watch these people watch the world that they are moving around in. So it definitely has a hold of me. I'm thrilled that uh, Criterion put it out on Blu-ray for us finally, and it looks amazing. I just, I just can't get over the transfer and how well it looks, but but I think we'll get into that probably more toward the end of the, you know, kind of at our, our wrap-up. Here's everything we think about the whole disc in general. Um, right now, I, frankly, I just want to get into spoiler territory and uh, and find out some of what this film does for you, Scott, because I think it's a film that can do so much for different people and, you know, not to be cliched, but it's all kind of valid because I think the film just opens itself up for those mysteries to let people wonder and to examine themselves and examine the world we live in, both the past and the future. And, you know, the various things that, uh, that are a part of this world, you know, our, our desires, our hopes, our fears, and it just pulls that all together in such a, a lovely, mysterious package that I, I love going here with him. Yeah, for sure. Uh, your experience of popping in Stalker and uh, uh, mindlessly watching, not mindlessly, but inadvertently letting an hour go by, uh, I can certainly <laughs> I relate to that. I want to give that part up. Yeah. Uh, when, uh, when you suggested this as a topic for an episode, I think I said that, well, yeah, I'd seen it in May or whatever, so I'll just kind of go off my memory of it. I wasn't expecting to get the Blu-ray fortunes definitely turned for me and the better so i ended up with it and so i was like okay i'll pop it in kind of get another sense of the aesthetics see how the transfer looks all that good stuff and before i knew it similarly an hour had gone by i was like well i guess i have to finish the rest of this in short order <laughs> and i soon did in the next couple of days um and in that way there's this way in which the zone that they travel into is kind of uh similar to the experience of watching tarkovsky's movies in general you know they go to this they travel from a more recognizable land uh, you know, I mean, I wasn't in the in Russia in the mid 20th century, but you kind of recognize it uh, from cultural images of it kind of run down, you know, a, a, an empire that could have been kind of space. Um, and so they travel from that to this mysterious zone that, you know, some text at the beginning kind of sets up as a basic idea of, you know, some kind of extra dimensional or extraterrestrial force invaded and something kind of. Uh, 
uh, fermented there and, you know, it's under lock and key now, but people are trying to break in and see what it's all about and not dissimilar to what would happen. Uh, every discussion the film must bring up to Chernobyl where there was a huge nuclear disaster and now it's become like a daring fun zone for people to dive into and try to capture some experience of it. Um, but the zone that they travel into in Stalker, as with watching Tarkovsky's movies, you know, senses of time and space and uh, weather patterns and even uh, personal behavior, it starts to kind of break down and uh, you just kind of are, they, the characters seem to find themselves kind of just moving through it more on instinct than on any firm sense of what they're after, or where they could be or where they're going. Uh, even though they do have a goal in mind, you know, even the stalker who's sort of their guide seems to kind of be making up as he goes along, uh, which I find uh, incredibly compelling and which then leads, you know, the spaces they uh, inhabit continue to get stranger and stranger. They move to like this weird tunnel uh, with, and then there's a sand room with these like owls flying around and it just keeps getting weirder and weirder until they end up at this room that's supposed to grant all their deepest desires. And so, you know, the first time I'm watching, I'm like, all right, here we go. This room, shit's going to get crazy. <laughs> We're finally uh, there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd seen, you know, Mirror and stuff. I was like, Tarkovsky, time to unleash the craziness. And then it's just some guys sitting there and, and realizing that uh, all, their, all they've hoped for is not going to come true and that, you know, it, it's just some space that uh, and they'll just have to live with the unknown and with not, you know, realizing whatever they'd hoped to get out of life. Uh, and, and on that level, I think I was a little disappointed uh, when I first saw the film. But, you know, in a way, that's what the film's about. The film's about disappointments. We're supposed to be as built up as these people are and as uh, kind of flattened by the realization as they are. And it's, it's a very, uh, uh, I don't know, very bewitching film in that way. Did you kind of, is that the disappointment you were referring to earlier? Um, well, yes, yes and no, um, <laughs> okay. because my own, since we're now talking about spoilers, it wasn't so much disappointment as just pure, what was, what was that? You know, it's, it, it, it wasn't even, it, I mean, the space baby at the end of 2001 seemed more clear to me than what happens with monkey on the table with the cups. You know, I just didn't see that coming. I had no, I still don't know what that means, but I didn't know how to relate that with the whole movie. And I like how you've, you've talked about Stalker as almost a journey into Tarkovsky's film, you know, like a, here's what I'm doing with you guys, where you have this guide that you for, at first trust, and he seems to be wandering in circles. And you wonder if he's really got control over this situation, or if he's making it up as he goes, and you start to maybe lose a little bit of faith. And things do start to get crazy, you know, like you talk about the meat grinder, that tunnel and the dune, the room with the dunes to where you're like, OK, this is this is real. You know, something crazy is going on. And then they just sit outside the room and you wonder yourself, what what am I expecting here? What meaning can this film convey to me that's going to be satisfactory to what I, you know, my what I'm anticipating? And so I love that that reading of the film as as in a way a journey into into the film itself. Um, and I, I'm also interested that that you read the end um, with them sitting outside the room as them just kind of realizing they're not going to get what they want. Whereas for me, I think I look at it more as they don't want to know what they want. And oh, it might be nothing, but they also don't want to know themselves quite that well. 
And they've been philosophizing during their whole journey that when they finally have the opportunity, they're tentative. They don't want to go in. And I love the part where the writer is leaning in and he starts to stumble in and he he does not want to fall into the room. And Stalker himself reaches up and grabs him and pulls him back because there's some there's something in that room about human nature and human desire that they've come around to is not for them Um, to me. To me anyway. But I do like your your reading of it too, that they realize nothing I get out of that room is going to really change anything. Because I think the film goes there too, and, and it is about that disappointment. It's about leaving without getting what you were journeying for, without getting that climactic moment, and going back to, to your life. So so yeah, I think those are two two different readings, but two that do do kind of work with uh, with what we're given on, on the film. Yeah, there's a sort of complementary aspect to both the ways we see it. I hadn't really considered uh, your angle because to me, when they get to that dialogue moment, where I think the writer asks the professor, "Well, who told you about this room?" and the professor's like, "Well, he did," and it kind of you right. get the sense that <laughs> the, the only guy kind of propagating whatever myth there is about the zone and the room is just this one guy who is making money off of them, which is why I think in one of the supplements on the disc, I think they talk about how Tarkovsky's initial conception of the film, the stalker was more of kind of an exploitative figure who just kind of led people in just for the monetary aspect and was kind of a grifter in a way. Uh, and part of the transformation of the film through its r- remarkably complex and, uh, Overenveloped uh, oh, yeah. development process where they end up shooting the film at least twice. Uh, throughout that process, the stalker became more of kind of a true believer. I think that was definitely the right choice. I think it makes it a, a much more gutting finale, no matter how you read it. Um, but uh, I can't remember what I was trying to say here. <laughs> but basically, uh, that uh, yeah, I've completely lost my train of thought. I apologize. I have two journeyed oh. to the room and and left with nothing. <laughs> Perfect. That's perfect. Some of their conversations should go this way too. <laughs> yeah. Well, you were talking about just their their disappointment and how turning turning Stalker into from this person who just wants their money, um, who who may be the person who actually invented the rumor about the room, and for all we know about this, you know, exploiting the rumor of the zone itself for money to someone who truly believes in it. Yeah, I guess uh, on that angle, if he does truly believe in it, then I mean. Who knows where he got? He kind of refers to this, um, what, Mr. Porcupine or something? Uh, yeah, Porcupine. Yeah. As the mentor. His kind of mentor figure. And, you know, maybe this guy existed, maybe he didn't. But at the very least, he does seem to be kind of the last uh, member of his own little church uh, in terms of uh, believing what the zone is or what it could be or it might be. Um, and his own refusal to go into the room kind of ensures that he can never completely lose faith. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's, oh, I love that. yeah, that's certainly interesting on its own. And as far as the ending with monkey in, in the glass, I, I don't know, to me at first I kind of read almost kind of cheap where I well, like, well, well maybe f- do you, do you, you know, go ahead. I was gonna, do, do, do you mind if I hold off on, on the, that oh, for ending? Sure. Yeah. And you just brought I, it up I'd, I'd love so. to. Yeah, yeah, I did. Let, let's, I would love to keep kind of honing in on this, um, aspect of stalker yeah. and his faith. Um, because there's the strong possibility that the person who actually invented all of this and was the one who was just making money was Porcupine, Stalker's mentor. Mm-hmm. And Stalker has just blindly followed him. I mean, how crazy is it that the way you find your way to the room is 
you can see it right in front of you. It's like 200 yards away, but you have to go at it through all these different passages and tunnels. And the way Stalker um, gets there is by throwing these nuts, these not not like things you eat, but like bolts <laughs> and nuts, you know, not, and they're, he's tied strings to them or, or cloth and he'll just throw them and then they have to follow these things. I mean, it's the most random who would, you know, if that is the way to the to the room, who would have thought, well, maybe this is how to do it. <laughs> you right. know? It's the craziest thing. It requires faith to follow. And you almost wonder if he if he does believe in it so much. Um, but the porcupine was the one who made it all up. And when porcupine's brother gets killed in one of the journeys, that's why porcupine goes back. And all the money that he got from his trips in are the things that make him finally commit suicide himself because he's realized that he's he's invented something. But, you know, he's dead now and he's got this acolyte, this stalker out there who's going to continue on this this journey. But you're right. I love how you put it. He, he doesn't ever enter the room. He himself has never entered. He considers it his calling to simply take people there so that they can find their happiness. I mean, that's such an, a, a, a religious connotation to that, that um, it's hard to look at it any other way. But he has absolute faith. But you, you see that kind of start to break down as they sit outside of the room, all three of them, wondering if it's real wondering what would happen if it is real, not wanting to know either way, not wanting to find out who they really are, and going back home and having to deal with the consequences. So, uh, yeah, I, I really like that. Just that reading alone is fascinating enough for me to enjoy the film, I think. <laughs> oh, there's plenty of reason to enjoy the film. I mean, no matter how you read right. it, like, like we One said, just the, the experience <laughs> of watching and Tarkovsky's way of filming. Have you read the uh, essay that came with uh, Criterion's release? I did. Yeah, because yeah, he latches on to an good. element that's always kind of teased at me, but which I can never really verbalize, which all great essays tend to do, I guess, mm -hmm. um, which is how interesting people's heads are in Tarkovsky's films. You know, you have this stalker yeah. who has this, like, dash of white hair in it, his uh, mostly bald head, and I don't know, there's just these very elemental things that I, I think I sometimes overlook in trying to find some high-minded reading on a film that are often the things that uh, egg us along. Yeah, he's got, that that essay actually kind of messed up um, my progress on a review of Bresson's um, L'Argent. Oh. <laughs> because in that, you know, obviously there's almost no attention to the head. Right. It's almost always cut off. And so I was really, I don't know, I'm trying to work through that still. Um, but yeah, the, there's, and I think that might be one of the reasons I'm so happy just to watch these people sit and and, and look around. I mean, once we get into that bedroom, Stalker's bedroom, before he leaves to go out back into the zone at the very beginning of the film, we pan over his wife and his daughter, Monkey, and over Stalker, and he's sitting there watching them. And, you know, there's no indication of what he's thinking there, but you just have to kind of invent it yourself and wonder. You know, turns out he's thinking about leaving them, but what are his feelings there about abandoning his family? Um, how much does he believe in this zone that he's going to leave them behind again? Does he feel trapped? Does he feel um, weighed down or does he feel regret? And I, I still don't know, um, but I love that I can think about all of that because I'm watching him and his head and his eyes as he as he looks around. So so yeah, I did I did enjoy that part of the essay as well. There's there's so much in this film and, and of course, that's just the visual part. Um, you've got the train rumblings, the the um, the 
animal sounds every once in a while. It's just full of ambience. Water, water almost constantly, it feels like, through the film. So there's there's just so much. Um, I, I, I've never seen it in a theater, but I, I really can't imagine how, how great of an experience that must be to just be fully into that that room. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they talk about it in one of the supplements with the interview with the composer. He talks about how important Tarkovsky's sound design is, and it really is key as much as anything to getting enveloped by the film. And the intersection in this film, especially, I think, between music and uh, ambient noise is very important. And the way that you highlighted the kind of train journey earlier, but the way the train tracks kind of merge with the uh, electronic music and eventually you become almost entirely music from what I can tell, maybe with a slight click of the train tracks. Um, but there's this way in which there's kind of music to the natural world that is then uh, amplified through the composition that's very interesting. Yeah, so I guess to to go not you, you can keep going on that track if you want. Um, I don't want to derail it, um, <laughs> but I am I am curious uh, about your thoughts on on the stalker. You know, why does the pathway to the room have to be circuitous? Do you believe in it? Or I, I know the film can can leave it both ways. But what do you think? I mean, do you have do you think that there's enough evidence that this place is important and has some extra power? and that there is a pathway that's appropriate to get there and it has to be difficult? Or do you think that it is just an invention? I mean, you personally, if you were if you were there, you know, what, what's your thought on that? I mean, I am very given over to kind of the possibility of the supernatural or the extra real or whatever. Uh, I, you know, I, I like to think the world is more mysterious than we uh, generally experience it. That might be in my own... Uh, personal delusion my own personal zone that i keep telling myself exists but i think there's just enough in the film to kind of uh make it possible you know there's certainly the scene of monkey at the end moving the glasses which actually i was reminded in rewatching the film there's some glass moving at the beginning of the film too they kind of bookended in a nice way but then there's that part where uh the professor has to go back for his rucksack which we later find out contains a bomb and that's why he's so invested in it uh, but when he goes back you know we kind of sense we've lost him or maybe he'll have to rush back, but they end up just kind of walking back by him. And I mean, sure the path they're taking to the room could just circle back on a place they've been before, but the stalker is so surprised to find him there that I, I have to figure he has enough sense of the geography of the zone to know that if he was doubling back, he could pass the professor again. Uh, so I think there's enough ambiguity there in the conception of the zone that kind of seems to have a life of its own. And then actually another part I just remembered, um, which actually they also bring up in one of the settlements, but I'm going to disagree with the reading here. Uh, there's that part where the camera is kind of a approaching that kind of burned out car. Uh, and we see the three men kind of emerge on the other side of the car. Now in the supplement, what's his name? Uh, Jeff Dyer kind of reads that as yeah. starting out with the professor's point of view because we see him walking towards the car and he is walking towards the car. But if you notice in that shot right beforehand, he's walking towards the car from an angle that's different than the shot we get uh, approaching the car, the kind of point of view shot. Um, and that's, I mean, it's a small thing, but Tarkovsky is so attuned to every element of the film that I have to imagine that he wasn't unaware of that and that if he wanted to make it a point of view shot, he would have changed the staging of either that shot or of the professor's approach. Um, but at the same time, when that shot is happening, there's a part where you can see the camera operators like 
limbs kind of bending gra the grass in front of him and kind of appears on the edges of the frame. You know, there's kind of presence there that, you know, logically we know to be the camera operator, but again, it's Tarkovsky. So he is so attuned to the way that the camera infects everything that goes on with the film. So if he didn't want there to be, you know, the grass kind of bending around the frames or any kind of force, you know, he could have used a dolly or a crane or something. He didn't have to have you know, a camera physically rolling or an operator physically moving that would have disrupted the grass. So I, to me, shots like that and then the part with the professor kind of indicates that there is some kind of force in the zone or some kind of presence that is kind of bending the space around them in some small but, you know, I'm sure if I were actually in the zone, significant way. Yeah, there's so much that happens off the camera too that they're they're either kind of moving, they're looking at something and we don't ever get the, the shot. There's the part where he just drops the bolt or the, the nut and it clings and does all these different things right in front of them. And the camera's right in front of them and they're looking down and, but we don't, we don't get to look down. <laughs> you know, we don't, we don't know what they're looking at. What's scary, what's happening. There's so much of that, that it does make the whole thing feel palpable as if, if, if I could just turn my head far enough, I could see what they're seeing in the frame, you know, just on the, just on the corner there. And to me, that does the same thing. It, it really creates this sense of, um, of space, strangely, um, even though it, it's limiting it and not letting me be a part of it, it, it actually opens up the whole area to where I feel like I'm there with them almost, uh, maybe hovering. And and yeah, I, I know what, what shot you're talking about with the grass bending and such. That's a, an interesting shot because it goes from quite a ways away from that burned out car. Then it stops in the car to watch them as they look forward and see where they're about to go. And then the camera just goes right through the car and keeps going behind them for a little bit. And, you know, such a, a nice technical shot. I, I don't know all that they did to get it. Probably wasn't the, the hardest, the most difficult thing. But a really nice sense of, um, of hovering and of presence there that, you know, I don't feel all the time. So, and I agree with you, it just must be um, deliberate. And all the things Tarkovsky puts in the air, all those little floating um I don't know what they are, seedlings, you know, from those little cotton trees or something like that. Yeah, they're all over the place sometimes just and they're beautiful to look at because they're just shimmering there and floating gracefully. But there's such a sense of the air and and uh, of of this open space. And yet, for whatever reason, there's it, everything, everyone is, is kind of contained within themselves to the point where they're almost in some kind of psychological prison. And I think that's an important part of the film, too. The stalker has been in prison, um, probably because of breaking the law and taking people into the zone. And he's he doesn't consider that prison, though. He considers his life outside the zone prison. He tells his wife such. I mean, what an insult. And when he gets to the zone, he find, he says to the others, the people he doesn't know, the writer and the professor, we're home. You know, we're, we're here. We're home. And he actually uses the word home. You know, he he's in a prison outside of this world. And yet, the you know, there's the open space. But it isn't just that. It's, it's the psychological prisons of whatever world they live in on the outside. It, it has a weight. It has a bearing. The air is filled with these floating things. It, it's, it's sepia toned. And there's, 
just a dinginess everywhere. I mean, that bar looks like it burned down and was put back up together and, and then, you know, has been drenched with all kinds of awful things. Yeah, for (laughs) sure. That they meet in at the beginning. I mean, it, it does, it feels claustrophobic at the same time, the space and everything is so open and, I, I, you know, I, again, I kind of think that that's a great thing about the attention to the heads is you do force so much of this, um, this weight into that one tiny space. I do, I, I feel the weight, I feel the psychological prison that they're, that they're suffering from, um, their desires for something better, for just a twinge, tinge of happiness, each of them admitting they've never met anybody that they think is happy. Um, just some, some fascinating stuff there about, about, how the how our surroundings can really kind of affect how we are you know our 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 consciousness well yeah we overhear that line at the beginning where i think it's the writer saying you know he's like the world is so utterly boring he's like there's no telepathy no ghosts no (laughs) flying saucers as though there's you know not other things to enjoy in life the only things we could get enjoyment (laughs) from are these ridiculous fantastical things well i'm sitting there thinking when he says that didn't I just read about a flying saucer or something that made this whole beautiful, mysterious area that you're about to venture yeah, into? Yeah, right. <laughs> well, <laughs> but to him, that's ha- mundane by this point. Yeah, maybe. I guess that's the way we all and maybe internalize in things it. that have actually happened is they just become part of life. Uh, but yeah, the two kind of worlds are interesting because, you know, in, environmentally, they don't seem to be that different. You know, both places are kind of very wet, very thick with fog, mm-hmm. uh, you know, very kind of burned out and hollow in their own way. Uh, but I, th- I think there is kind of a difference, not only because the first part is that sepia tone, or I guess in earlier prints, black and white. I'm not sure which is, I imagine the sepia is more correct, but it's hard to say because there have been both versions. Uh, and then the zone, of course, is in color, which is very striking the first time you see it. With all those sharp angled um, boards pointing toward the center of the frame, kind of like in um, Ivan's childhood, the, oh, same, totally, the yeah. same technique of of all these things pointing all these all this garbage not garbage it's not garbage it's you know just broken down civilization yeah pointing to these men and to the world they're about to take and maybe it is just because of the color but the zone to me kind of felt like denser and maybe it's because they also have to work through it in such a you know circular fashion such an unusual pattern but it, it feels like such a more dense world it feels like nature itself carries more weight than it does outside of the zone I think you're right. And I, again, I go back to those floating, um, you know, cottonwood seedlings or whatever they are. They just hover in the air, which really does give a lightness and an, uh, and an emptiness to the world outside of the zone. Where in the zone, they're always, they almost always seem to be wet and plunging through water. And they're, they're like bugs and, and like little insects crawling on them they get mud all over them and it just looks it, it's dirty but it's a different kind of filth than the one on the outside there is i, I like how you put it as a, as a density um it, it really does feel like they're breathe. you know i don't know th- that's part of why i feel like i get so enwrapped in the movie is it, it almost affects my room you know where i'm watching it I, I can feel some of the weight when they get into the zone because of those images and the and again the sounds that are going on all around them well and especially as they move towards the end and they start like wading through that oily sludgy water <laughs> like that that's where i turn back if, if i haven't already that, that for sure is the line well and you know i mean we haven't talked about it but i almost every time i see those images it makes me wonder if that's where the kind of infamous toxic you know matter um 
got into Tarkovsky and to his wife and into into the lead actor who you know that none of them very old and ended up killing them a few years later of cancer. Um, they, yeah, they filmed true. this at a, in Estonia by a, kind of an abandoned chemical plant, and there was just a lot of I guess toxins in the water and in the various places. And so I see those scenes. And, you know, they couldn't have known it at the time, but they do kind of carry that same weight of of danger. They look awful. <laughs> they don't look like something I would get into even as an actor, um, you know, but they're lying down in it sometimes. And, oh, yeah, it's it, it becomes very heavy and you, you feel the chore of of their of their travel to this room that, you know, at the very beginning was right there. You could have just walked across that field. Um, but they've gone through these through these ordeals in order to get there, and you know again maybe for the filmmakers and and the the cast and and those involved may have may have been something that cost them their lives unfortunately. Yeah, uh, I, have you seen uh, Sorcerer, the William Friedkin film? I haven't. I've been wanting to because everyone's been talking about the last few years. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's a really great film. You should definitely check it out. But I, I thought of it just now because when I saw it a couple of years ago at a theater here, Friedkin was on hand to do a and a after the film. And he talked about, you know, the extreme danger that he put the cast and crew in. I mean, there are sequences of that film that you really think someone's going to die at any moment. Uh, and he talked about, you know, <laughs> being a younger filmmaker and thinking how awesome it was and how it's, you know, totally worth it for the art. And he's like, at my age now, I'm like, no. No movie is possibly worth this. And you kind of wonder if Tarkovsky had a similar mindset because, I mean, yeah, nothing in the film really looks manufactured. It all feels very real and genuinely abandoned and genuinely dangerous and genuinely uh, unpleasant. Uh, you know, you don't get the sense when they wade in that water that whatever oil they put in there is just kind of, kind of manufactured thing. It's like, no, that's the real stuff that they're wading into. Yeah, no, I think you're right because it, it is filmed a lot on on not on location like the right. zone <laughs> in the but, actual um, zone. <laughs> but it, but at the same time, kind of. I mean, it right. it really is just this dead part of the world that once was alive, and not only dead, but has been dead so long that um, you know everything's fallen over, everything is rotting, and everything is it, it, you know nature is taking over again. And and I think you're right. I think they just kind of went for it, and it's beautiful. You know, it certainly does create a, a massive, uh, massively powerful work of art. And apparently, based on you know the stalker, that's the purpose of life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to right. Create, create art, and you know they did it. But but yeah, it's what what cost? And I don't know. You know that that I I think that people think that, and it's fairly you know it's it's very plausible. I don't know if it's if it's the truth, I don't know if anyone's proved it. Like this is what made all of these people involved die of cancer a few years later. You know, there were other things going on in the world that might've affected them, but you know, it all kind of, it does add a, a weight to the film and make it, make it that much more tangible. It's, 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 it's too bad. And, and it makes the napping part where they're all just napping in the water and and thinking and hallucinating almost it feels like and the stalkers POVs turning back into sepia and such just that much more terrifying and and in the pool is all of those objects like you know syringes that look like drugs or painkillers of some kind and there's there are coins down there there's a religious card and then there's a gun and it just it, it all looks dangerous it all looks you know, or at least things that you can look at as being dangerous. 
Um, I'm not trying to suggest money or religion are dangerous, but certainly people can use them that way. And, you know, it makes you wonder about this this idea of looking for this happiness. And are these the ways people look for happiness? You know, drugs, money, religion, guns. Or are they ways to hide how unhappy they really are? You know, some kind of emptiness. Is the zone an invention to give people hope? And is it is it just that these people all of a sudden realize at the end, kind of have an epiphany about how unhappy they really are, this, this state of everything? So I don't know. Do, do, do you? Or maybe I've said something you want to respond to, but I'd also kind of like to, to just touch on the religion in the film, the various religious images, um, before we, we start to wrap up. But I'll, I want to, before we do that, maybe if you have something you want to say to anything that we've we've talked about so far. Uh, no, I mean this will move us along uh, right into the religious aspect. But yeah, I mean so much of it is built on the idea of illusion and kind of, uh, and I, I think they've mentioned this elements that Tarkovsky did find in the story, a kind of uh, quote unquote safe way to criticize religion without, you know, directly criticizing the institution of the church. Um, but just the nature of belief, which he seems to find, you know, kind of fruitless or at least unfulfilling in some way um, is I, I think very much at the forefront of the film. Um, yeah. So I, I, would agree, and I'm definitely curious to discuss the religious aspect more because I, Tarkovsky's relation to the spiritual world is so at the forefront in some ways because his films are slightly surreal or at least extra real, and they have this kind of uh, otherworldly dimension to them, but without really being certainly dogmatic about it, but it even uh, generally uh, believing about it either. Yeah, in fact, I, I've heard in some places that Tarkovsky was religious. Okay. Am I? I don't know. I don't know if I'm if I'm right or not about that. But I do know. Here's one thing I do know. He has said that all of his films were made about religious fanatics, okay. and I think you can look at all of them and and find that that parallel. And this one in particular, with we've already talked about it with Stalker's kind of um, maybe blind faith in in the zone and in this room and in his own role in helping people get there. Um, you know, he, he could almost be seen. There's the part where where he talks about the the biblical passage where where after Jesus is resurrected he's walking on the road to Emmaus and and um walking with two men and they don't recognize him they don't know who he is um you know it it certainly wants you to at least consider even if it's doing it as kind of a a blind alley um it wants you to consider the parallel between the stalkers walking these men to this to this room and to their hopes and and that story of the of Jesus walking with the two on the road to Emmaus we've got passages from the book of revelation we've we've got the part where the writer puts on some branches that look like a crown of thorns this is the writer played by the same actor who played Andre uh, Rublev <laughs> so you know just some interesting parallels there I have read some things about stalker and religion but frankly I think all the pieces I read were written by someone who was more blind to what stalkers really doing and more interested in trying to shoehorn it into a religious argument so I don't oh, think yeah. they're quite worth talking about here it looked more you know well here's what he's doing here and here's here's all you know this is what this means when I really don't think Tarkovsky's interested in in being quite that precise I mean and I, and I furthermore just disagreed with a lot of their conclusions <laughs> right but there's certainly a lot of religion in this film 
and it's presented in some really interesting ways. Um, like I say, that religious token, you know, the, the, the picture of, of, of Christ that's submerged in the water and it's covered with money and it's got the syringes next to it and the gun. And this is all in a long pan, a long pan over the, over the water. But yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on in here about seeking and trying to find meaning and trying to find happiness and hope, getting your, your desires uh, manifested to you and to, you know, be, and to become real that I, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't have an answer. I just find it all fairly fascinating. So yeah, I hope you have an answer. Well, <laughs> hardly, but uh, I guess he, it could be saying, you know, I mean, without reducing the film to a simple statement, but there could be the element where, you know, these guys journey in it and want something simple from it. They want their hopes revealed, or I guess eventually the case of the professor to d- destroy anybody's hopes from yeah. being uh, given to them. Uh, which I think there's definitely a religious angle there, or at least an atheist angle there where, you know, you hear people say all the time that, you know, there would be no wars if, you know, nobody believed in God. Well, it's like people would find something else to fight about, for God's sake. Um, <laughs> I think so, they probably would. <laughs> yeah. It, it, I don't think the professors uh, really thought through the idea that, like, you know, people find something else to seek out or some other thing that will fulfill them. Um, but I think if... You're correct, and again, I don't know about Tarkovsky's personal religious convictions, but he, his films definitely give the sense that there are no easy answers, and whatever, yes. uh, whatever you know, grace and goodness we can find in religion, you know, you can't just expect the rewards to come from merely accepting that. You know, you have to do the work and still think about the world around you and think about the things that you're doing to make it either a better or worse place or, and I think the characters in the film definitely grapple with that. You know, the writer talks about how he kind of feels he's wasted his life, you know, just, you know, if he wasn't around, someone else would write stories and someone else would be adored. You know, he's not really contributing anything. He's just finding an excuse for his imagination. You have to wonder if, you know, Tarkovsky felt similarly, um, but at the same time, you know, I mean, his films do kind of honestly grapple with not only the responsibility of the artist, but with just the responsibility as a person, you know, with how much good one person could possibly do and how much, uh, how fully you can really investigate in, in, in individual life, let alone the lives of others. Yeah, there's just they have so many interesting conversations that open up in ways that, you know, it's nothing about the 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 surface of what they're saying it's all about the various things underneath and they they come kind of fast you know they have quite a few they 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 jab each other a lot the writer is is cynical he doesn't really believe all of this but he's he's along anyway you know he believes enough to to follow or at least fears some things enough to to follow the stalker the professor believes enough in the room to want to destroy it and and doesn't in the end, but that's an interesting little little tidbit about him. You know, the man of science who who believes that that people it's too dangerous of a thing to have a room out there that'll grant anyone's desires. You know, that'll that'll leave lead to some people t- trying to take over the world and all that kind of stuff. So he believes in enough for that. And I and I really like the the part where they're kind of sitting there wondering, just do we go forward? Do we want to find out? Do we want this mystery to become either something real or or dissipate because it's fake? And I like how the writer says, this is all just someone's invention. And then talking to Stalker says, you, of course, want to know whose. And I think that that's just fascinating because it is this idea of, was it porcupine? Is, there, is it some godlike invention? 
you know, all that kind of stuff. So there's there's just a lot of stuff going on in here. And, you know, the, I think the interesting thing is we haven't talked a lot about the main purpose of the room. We've, we've certainly alluded to it, but to, to help your most cherished desire come together or come to fulfillment. And Stalker says it's the one that made you suffer the most. And, and what that even just says about human desire and, and, you know, there's, I think there's so many nice threads there if we want to go down one. I didn't necessarily plan on it either. I'm just kind of thinking about that right now and realizing that I think the film says a lot about our selfishness and our, our desire, our, our kind of a myth we tell ourselves that we're better than we might really be and that our most cherished desires may be anything but good good right. for us good for anybody around us i think there's there's a lot of um, interesting things going on there and and uh yeah just a, a, a an interesting thing and how hope uh kind of plays in all this you know you come to this place before the room when all hope is gone and hoping that your cherished desires might be fulfilled and yet none of them step in the room and the science or the professor does not destroy it and yeah. i just think it's an enigma uh, yeah, I mean, the whole journey, I, mean, I think any viewer would be uh, forced to confront their own uh, desires and what they might uh, think they would get out of the room or what they would hope they would get out of the room. And, it, you know, I mean, I, I, I kind of came up empty. You know, there are, there are things in me that I definitely want and want for the world and, you know, want for myself. And all of them, I was like, well, is, would this be ultimately what the room would show me, uh, you know, what would mm-hmm. what would I truly be faced with in, in myself to and I, I think it is interesting that the stalkers like, well, you have to really think about your whole life, you know, when you go in there, you have to kind of submit to a sort of form of prayer in order for the the room to hear you, which is a very uh, direct kind of religious allegory, but it definitely uh, it definitely makes you think about yourself in a, a different light. Um, but as mm-hmm. as you, you're the one saying that the room is probably real, and that these guys just didn't want to go into it. What do you make then of the professor dismantling the bomb? Uh, you know, to me, it kind of fed into the I whole. Don't know. <laughs> That's a good point. It That's kind of fed question. into the whole notion of you know they ultimately decide that the room can't give them anything, or uh, it maybe isn't even a supernatural force at all. Um, and so that in that context, the professor dismantling the bomb made perfect sense because it's like, well, you know, there's no sense in just blowing shit up for no reason. Um, but if, if the room has that potential, does he just decide that, you know, no one man should have that much power kind of thing? Or how do, how do you see that? It could be because the thing that's hard for me in saying that the room is not real and it might not, it might still not be real, but there's too much kind of mystery that's happened right out in front of our faces at this point. We've got the weird room with the dunes. I mean, that's, that's weird. That's, (laughs) that's mystical. If I walked through that room in the middle of nowhere, I'd think something was up. But then there's electricity in that room, and there's the telephone call. And there's that well that seems to go down for like hundreds of yards. Yeah. There there are some things here that I, I do, th- I almost wonder if the professor, you know, and again, it could still be that there's just weird things, and maybe Porcupine was super elaborate, or some other stalker before Porcupine, in, in saying, well, I've got all this time and that no one's coming, I'll just make this crazy room with a bunch of dunes. But it it seemed to me that there's a little bit of um, mystery. I mean, there the 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 writer definitely gets like struck down 
at one point and and seems to be warned to not go to the room that the director out not by either the stalker or the or the professor he seems to be warned by some other voice so there are weird things that make it tantalizing and maybe there are ways to explain these things away like well stalker couldn't throw his voice you know <laughs> or something like he was the one who yelled don't go that way and it just disguised it in such a way you know maybe someone did invent the 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 room of the dunes and and um you know the meat grinder is not actually that scary if you don't believe it's it's mysterious it's just some tunnel and yet that is where people are dead you can see their bodies you can see the the couple in an embrace over in their skeletons and it's 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 grotesque and and scary and it also seems to be where porcupine's brother died so there seems to be true danger and true mystery so yeah i think i, I actually do have written down here why doesn't the professor destroy the room <laughs> But I don't know. I don't know why he doesn't at that point. I, that certainly, there's the possibility that he realizes it's all for nothing. You know, there's no reason I kill myself out here for something that is a myth. But he himself doesn't go into the room. You know, there's some, uh, I don't know, maybe it's like those little things that they have in, um, you know, those temples or whatever, ancient temples where it's like, if you put your hand in this in this mouth of the statue, right. it'll bite it off. Well, I, I don't believe that. But I might not do it. Yeah, at the same time, who am I to test? <laughs> right, exactly. And I wonder, I wonder if that's part of it too, where the professor does kind of sit back and say, you know, he's changed in this journey and he might be the character I've, I've least grappled with to understand his change. So I'm not sure I have any good, good way to put it other than, you know, he certainly believes in it enough to want to destroy it and not to go in it, but... But I don't know if I can track his his change of heart as much as I would like to. Yeah, I mean, I think kind of the way you put it, especially uh, that hand in the mouth uh, metaphor, which I think is perfectly suited to the room, uh, is kind of the way I approach the film in general, which is, you know, yeah, the room might not be real or it might not, you know, do the things that the stalker says it will, but there's still mystery to the world that they can't explain. And I think it's really driven home at, the final shot with the with monkey moving the glasses around that there's still some yeah. force that exists in this space or in the world in general that uh can't fully be explained or grappled with but that doesn't mean it's going to grant your every wish you know there's this kind of in-between space that i think the film exists in yeah so i i, I rudely cut you off when you when you started to talk about monkey at that that final scene so i, I i'd love to love to hear your thoughts on that if i haven't completely destroyed your willingness to share them. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. I mean, I, I think the way I just put it is pretty much all I had to say. I guess the only thing I was going to say before is that when I first saw it, that struck me as maybe somewhat cheap to just be like, you know, well, God doesn't exist, but maybe. Um, but, you know, seeing the film again, <laughs> these kind of other elements that kind of hint at otherworldly or spiritual forces, I, I think are is kind of embedded throughout the film enough to give the ending a, a resonance that I didn't necessarily recognize the first time around yeah i i love it because i can't figure it out and i'm happy with that i hope i never become satisfied that oh, i totally. have because the i i love monkey uh, i love well i don't know monkey you know i don't know anything about her but i love the way tarkovsky presents her in in various parts uh, there's the beginning scene where she's sleeping on the bed and stalker is leaving he and his wife are in in an argument and the door kind of slams shut and then briefly swings open 
to reveal that Monkey is sitting up in the bed. And we only see her for a split second. And I think, wow, that is brilliant because we don't we don't really know anything about her yet. But we know she's there and and there's that moment of attention. She's paying attention. In what way? I don't know. And then we learn that children of stalkers are apparently cursed because to not walk or because of their ventures into the zone. I mean, talk about the Chernobyl stuff coming in before it even happened. But we learned that there's something wrong with children of stalkers. There didn't seem to be anything wrong with Monkey. But at the end of the film, I love again how Tarkovsky shows her walking you know, bouncing up and down, you hear the footsteps and it tracks her for quite a while. And then finally, the camera starts to to kind of change positions and zoom out a little bit. And you realize she's on Stalker's shoulders. And I don't know why, but that that part gets to me every time. And I don't even know, it's not, I don't know what kind of emotion I'm even experiencing there. It's not like I don't get choked up or anything, but there's just some kind of, whoa, you know, every time. Because I love the magic of how he does it, but I love also what it's revealing here about this this poor relationship. Something's gone on, and yet, you know, she's, she's definitely crippled, or maybe not. I guess he could just be carrying her, but I take it as she is. But then we see her reading a book of a poem, uh, you know, of poetry, and then moving the glass. I mean, there is something special about her, too. You know, maybe she's crippled in one way, but, get, you know, kind of latching on to that, that idea that's fairly common out there that, uh, you know, uh, this is like an, uh, Professor X or something like right. that. You know, can't walk, but got these great mind powers. And yet, why is she doing it? Who is she? Why does, why does he end the movie on her and not when they're sitting outside of the zone? You know, what is that completely changes the rest of the movie in a way that I, again, don't fully understand even my own emotions with it, but it makes me wonder who she is and what she's going to do. I've read readings of it where, where they think she's malevolent, you know, biding her time, bitter, that it's anger, that's, um, that's, kind of being manifested in the telekinesis, kind of like the brood or something like that, does it in the, these little children. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it, I've read that, but I don't know if there's anything to really suggest that, other than it just is a possibility. You know, she's certainly probably, you know, it's a dysfunctional home for sure, but, but I don't know. There's just so much great mystery about that part, and I'm not even sure... If it's appropriate, you know, it's one of those moments where you're like, are you sure the room is real? Stalker, Tarkovsky, you know, is this is this necessary? Are you really putting this here at the end for me to, to, to consider? Or are you just winging it and throwing your bolts, you know, across the room and hoping that I follow you? <laughs> and I'm happy with it, though, you know. I've just babbled on. I don't. I don't. I don't think I made a single point. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to in, the zone, man. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's how I feel. <laughs> no, but I think uh, the part you highlighted with uh, monkey being carried on the stalker's shoulders. But at first, we think she's walking. You know, that's kind of part and parcel of what we've been talking about this whole time. Where you know, the, to use that famous Martin Scorsese quote, I think it was Scorsese. You know, cinema is a matter of what's in the frame and what's outside of it. And that shots like that reveal that you know whatever we can see into this world, we can't see at all. And I think the ending really drives that home where I guess you could read malevolence into her actions that there's certainly, I always, or at least I forgot the second time that uh, the shot doesn't end with kind of the glass breaking, but 
the room starts to like shake in kind of an earthquakey, violent way. And I think there's, yeah, you, you, I can certainly see where the malevolence is coming from there. But I don't know. To me, it's just uh, a hint at, I guess, restlessness or a sense of wonder. But you know, I'm, I'm a uh, natural optimist <laughs> more than a pessimist. I, I naturally hope for the best, and so to me, it's like, oh, she's just uh, trying to escape for a little bit from her, her terrible home. But you know, maybe she is going to destroy <laughs> everybody. Who am I to say? We can't know. Cinema, we only see how much as much as we see, so we we can't ultimately know her intentions. Yeah, and I and I love it too. Uh, you know, there's so much detail in that shot. You know, I, I think I've already kind of recited a lot of the detail, and you just went into some more with the shaking at the end of the room. But there's the dog too, which we haven't even talked about. Yeah, totally. Who's kind of whimpering over on the side, and she looks at him, and he shuts up. <laughs> and and what kind of look was that? You know. Is it a reassurance? Is it shut up? I'm going to kill you next, you know? Right. And that, that may be where the malevolence comes from, but I don't see anything malevolent even in her glance over to the dog. And the glass doesn't even break, actually. The sound effect is is it like bouncing around oh, on the floor right, yeah. and I keep waiting for it to break and it doesn't, which which is a really interesting sense of missing my expector or doing something different than what I expected. You totally expect it to break and it just kind of bounces there. We just hear it. And a nice tie back to the beginning. I mean, we've got the train out the outside and that may be what's shaking the room. Probably not what moved the glasses because they move one at a time. <laughs> but yeah. the, the shaking there's there, some trains. They don't really move that way. <laughs> yeah. And the, the shaking at the beginning when they're all in bed which incidentally still shows the the table with the cup moving and shaking yeah, and totally. a, a, a little thing, a canister with a syringe in it. I mean, my gosh, all these things that are going on in this film, there's so much detail, so much um, to, to grapple with and so much tying back and forth. I mean, it's, it really is perfectly bookended. We've got the bar scenes. We've got the scenes of shaking and trains. We've got the the Marseillais playing in the background and and uh, and Ode to Joy playing in the background. What is that all about? I have no idea. It's just there. <laughs> Does the train just play loud music as it passes by? <laughs> it seems to. Uh, but it, it and it's the art, I guess, too, with that music. You know, there's something there. There's something. There's some reaching there at the end of of a better place. I, I think I'll choose to look at it positive positively that there's there's some transcendence of this situation where the wife and stalker are already kind of um uh buried in it you know drugs prison all these different things hope for something that's probably a myth and yet monkey is 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 moving beyond it in in a, in a way that i really quite like and and you know i mean it is based on science fiction she really could be some proto x-man there's there's a great old uh, book. Uh, oh shoot, I'm not going to be able to remember the title, but that is a kind of a proto X Men or evolutionary kind of thing, and you know she she does kind of call into mind those old sci fi stories of of the new the new creature, you know, something better than what we have right now in this dead world, and it certainly is a dead world. And here's here's the youth, and it's going to bud into something different, maybe better, maybe it'll destroy everything too, but but def definitely different. Well, I think you've uh, encapsulated it philosophically quite well. So I'll, I'll just add that as with all Tarkovsky, the uh, special effects to move those glasses, totally seamless. No idea how they do it. I always try to figure it out. I can't see magnets. You know, you'd think at the end shot that he does show under the table when that cup falls off. You'd think they'd, you'd be able to see something. You don't see string. 
You, yeah. d- you know, I don't know. I have no idea how he does it. Yeah, it's the same thing with like the woman floating in mirror. No idea. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to think of other instances. Um, but but yeah, all those are they're things that make you drawn further into the film, I think. You know, it's not oh, it's not sure. trying to figure out a special effect that pulls you out. You really are mystified because there's magic going on on the screen, literally, you know, with the telekinesis. But also the magic of of the movie and and wondering, and I think it puts us in that similar headspace where it's like, wow, what what is going on here? It's it's fascinating stuff, you know. I, I I have run through my notes on the film. I'd like to just touch briefly on the disc itself before we close out, but I'd I'd love to keep talking about it forever. But I think <laughs> this is a film that hopefully we will have chances to continue to revisit and keep talking about. Yeah, for sure. Um, do you have but any 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 other things? Uh, no, I, I think we've exhausted. I mean, like I said, this movie's only a couple of months old to me. I've only lived with it for so long. So uh, this is all I've managed hmm. to get out of it. But I look forward to having more time <laughs> with it for sure. Well, I, I, I think you've gotten a lot. You've helped me see a lot of different things. What do you think about this edition? For me, it was long awaited. I didn't ever think it would happen. And last year when Filmstruck had Stalker on it. I, I was so excited because it was Criterion branded and I, I you know, for me that was that was one of those moments of Criterion magic yeah, where this dream release is finally looking like it's going to happen and here it is and it certainly is a major improvement on the transfer. I mean, I I saw the old one um, several times and it, to the point where it really does, I think, affect your estimation of the film if you can't see the textures. I don't think I ever saw those things floating in the air on the old Kino DVD, which is a real shame because that adds so much. It's obviously there on purpose, and and this this is such a beautiful, detailed, atmospheric transfer with all that texture and all the all of the ripples and and you know bugs and things like that. That um, I certainly think it's worthwhile and worth everyone picking up who's who's interested. Though I was disappointed otherwise. How about you? (laughs) Uh, Well, I'll just say the transfer first off. Like I said, I did see it projected theatrically uh, the first time I saw it. So it totally holds up. The level of detail you see at home on a relatively small screen uh, totally holds up in the big screen and then makes the experience at home all the more worthwhile. Because, yeah, I mean, those kind of details, like the seeds floating in the air, things I thought about, I was reasons I was glad that I didn't see this movie before in kind of a subpar edition. I was glad I kind of held out for a few years to uh, see it restored so beautifully because this is a, I mean, it's a knockout of a transfer. The colors look extraordinary without feeling like oversaturated or anything. You know, it's very kind of, uh, I, I don't want to say muted because that makes it sound like something is not because it is such a rich and lush film, but it has a certain uh, calmness, I guess. And there's a real density yeah. to the sense of the colors. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's a really extraordinary job that they've done in tra- retransferring it and restoring it. Um, I sort of hear you on the rest of the disc though. I haven't watched, uh, the interview with the cinematographer yet, but the, I really like the interview with Jeff Dyer, you know, it kind of got me thinking about the film in some new ways, even if, like I said, I did disagree with him in some points and I did like the essay. Um, but you know, I mean, I, I think as much as I tend to kind of throw shade at people who grade supplements on discs by how many there are versus how good they <laughs> are. Uh, you know, you, you do kind of hope that films like Stalker would get a more kind of uh, grand consideration, you know, some more stuff in a fuller booklet, um, maybe some a commentary of some kind, you know. Uh, it's certainly a film, as I think we've 
discussed tonight that merits incredible amount of investigation and which can be unpacked. I mean, Jeff Dyer did write a whole book about it, so I guess he would know um, that there's <laughs> a ton you can say about the film. So um, I would have certainly liked to hear more. Yeah, it's the same with me. I mean, the the three interviews with the the crew, those were all on the Kino DVD. I'd seen them before, and so they they were recycling. And so the only new stuff on here is the essay and the Jeff Dyer interview. Oh, I didn't and know I, that. I, I like Jeff Dyer a lot. He, you know, I went and I, I, I bought his book not just because it was about Stalker, but because I like his work. He, but he's definitely a personal essayist kind of guy. I mean, he, he, he investigates interesting things, but not in a scholarly way. You know, it, it's very personal. His book about Stalker is, is, it's him basically sitting down and watching the movie and presenting its details. And then also every once in a while drifting into his own thoughts. I mean, you get you'll you might not like to read it, Scott, because he does not like Antonioni, and um, doesn't doesn't fail to dis Antonioni's work whenever he gets a chance. <laughs> well, that's not <laughs> necessarily a disqualifier, this. but uh, does make me wary. <laughs> but it but it's you know because of that. It, it's one thing that I'm like, okay, I'm seeing someone's perspective of it, but I'm not quite feeling the same amount of. Of um, I don't know hard hard scholarly investigation, which mm-hmm. maybe that would be inappropriate, and maybe I don't know if, if any of that would feel differently. But it, I felt like the release lacked some of those solid, fun video essays they've been doing that walk through certain scenes, even if not the whole thing. But yeah, I do like Jeff Dyer. In fact, I had actually written to the fellow who helps Criterion on their supplements and said, hey, if you guys are doing a stalker DVD, I'm sure you'll have a lot of great stuff. Consider doing Jeff Dyer. And he wrote back and said, oh, yeah, I, I love Jeff Dyer. He's actually a, f- a friend of mine. So I was like, oh, okay. oh, cool. So I can't take credit for like that supplement because I'm pretty sure it was on their mind already. But that okay. just I say that more to show that I, I, I did kind of want to hear his thoughts at, on this presentation and such. And so I wasn't disappointed in that. I just didn't feel like it was, well, you know, it wasn't everything I wanted. But that doesn't matter to me too much because it's still a film. You know, it's a great film. And it's presented as beautifully as I've ever seen it. Um, hopefully someday I'll get to see it on the big screen. But, you know, I'm very, very happy with the, the, the release and hope that people hope that people pick it up and, and continue through Tarkovsky's work. You know, it, it's, it's very worthwhile. It's mysterious. It's, it's heavy. <laughs> and yet there, there's a lot of there's a little bit of levity and fun things going on. You know, this this might be a little more heavy than some of them, but but I, oh, I love him. I love how oh, much he I mean, investigates the human psyche. The part where the woman drives away in the car with the hat still on top and it kind of looks like the hat's on top <laughs> of her head. That got a big laugh from the audience. I'll just say that. <laughs> oh, that's good. This is laugh out loud in, in Stalker. <laughs> yeah. Why not? You got to enjoy yourself a little bit. Yeah. Um, no, that's great. But yeah, so. I, I guess I'll just stop gushing for a minute and let you talk about what, what you're up to these days. Tell p- listeners where to find you and we'll close out. Uh, I'm at CriterionCast.com, of course, where I'll be writing a review of Stalker, which I'll hopefully uh, try to say some new stuff besides what the stuff I've said in this episode. Uh, we'll see how much I can come up with in the next week or so. <laughs> um, and at BattleshipPretension.com, where I'm working through the films of Eric Romare. I'm working on a piece about uh, Full Moon in Paris, which is a 
much more dense film than it kind of initially presents itself to be. But isn't that always the case with Romare, I guess? Um, and <laughs> beyond that, I can't think of anything else I directly have on the horizon. But, you know, I mean, I just rewatched Made in USA and I just can't stop thinking about it. So I'm going to try to figure out something I can do with that because I have a lot of thoughts on what I feel people kind of overlook and dismiss as a minor Godard, which it is in some ways, but it's a really uh, interesting, complex film and many others. Hmm. One I've never seen. Oh, it's so good. So uh, I'll look forward to your thoughts if you get them put up. By the way, I did enjoy your recent appearance on Battleship Pretension, uh, talking about whether it's important that movies are plausible or not. Oh, like yeah, that's that something else movies. I did that fairly was, recently. Yeah, that was a really good conversation. Thank you. So I appreciated that. Um, but yeah, listener, I, as far as I'm, I, I did write a review for Stalker for my site, uh, Mooks and the Gripes, and um, currently working on one of, of uh, Bresson's Larjean, as I kind of mentioned earlier. We'll hopefully uh, be able to put something together on that one that's interesting. But Scott, I look forward to your review of Stalker. It'll be fun to, to, to see what you put down and remember our conversation on here. We will be back. We have a lot of plans for future episodes, probably too many to really handle, but hopefully it may, means that we're excited and we'll, we'll We'll just keep um, be, being able to get together and put up these episodes. We, I really enjoy them, and I'm, I'm thrilled that you were with us tonight, Scott. So we, we, as we've been doing, we'll, we'll keep on kind of trading places and um, as we each kind of present a film and, and what we want to talk about and discuss it with, with whoever wants to join in. So we've got plans for, for quite a few episodes over the next few months. Yeah, I greatly enjoy these as well. And I'm immensely grateful that you're taking on more of the workload because, yeah, that was getting a little untenable. But uh, it's, been well, more, it's been great. Hopefully it, hopefully it means you get to participate as much as you, as, as you would like to. And it never feels like a chore. And no, not always like just a fun thing to come together on. Great. So. All right. Well, thanks so much, listeners. We'll talk to you soon.